Amen. Well, good morning. We are still walking through the epistles of John. We are still in the midst of 1 John uh, with good news and joy. We are wrapping up 1 John chapter 2 today, getting into 1 John chapter 3, and it is just going to continue to snowball from there over the next several weeks as we continue to walk through the, the epistles of John together, uh, getting through 1 John. We're eventually going to get to 2 John and 3 John, and as you're going to quickly see, the, the speed of the message, the speed of the text is going to begin to pick up as John continues to uh, hit on some very serious subjects for uh, the body of believers that he is speaking to, to the local church that he loves so dearly. Now, um, I was sharing this morning uh, with several folks that uh, in light of so many sports analogies, in light of giving so many football analogies, there have been several who have asked, Pastor, how can you constantly talk about football when it is clearly not football season? We need a break. I would remind you at that moment that the basketball season starts in November and it's still going. So cut me some slack if you will. However, for those of you who need a different analogy, let me open with a new one this morning. You see, in light of uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs, which are happening right now, which I will be the first to admit as a good Georgia boy, uh, I know nothing of hockey. Uh, we did not have a hockey team that was sustainable in Atlanta, and so hockey came and went about as fast as Coca-Cola would ship out of Atlanta. And so um, with that, hockey has never been my thing. It's never been my sport. I am amazed that here in Tampa, hockey is a big deal, uh, especially in light of the fact that we live in an area that the only time you ever see ice is in a sweet tea or a cold Coke or in some other uh, fruity iced, Kona iced drink that you may serve yourself. And so uh, it's amazing to me to see how good uh, this hockey team is. And so I've been watching, I've been learning. I've realized that in watching the Tampa Bay Lightning, I cannot pronounce over half the players' names. And that is by my own fault, not theirs. And I'm still learning all the ins and outs of hockey and how it works. And by God's grace, I have some dear men and dear brothers in my life here uh, who help me uh, learn the game of hockey. And so for those of you who get text messages from me about hockey, uh, thank you for being patient, bearing with me, and teaching me elements of the game as we walk. So in light of the Stanley Cup playoffs and in light of how well the Tampa Bay Lightning are doing again this season, I want to open this morning with a reminder of what really was one of the greatest moments in sports history. You see, the year was 1980, and the location was... Lake Placid, New York, which was the host of the Winter Olympics. It was during this particular Olympics that there, uh, we were given as Americans one of the greatest moments in U.S. sports history, a moment that would be eventually called the Miracle on Ice. Now, this moment took place when the U.S. national hockey team, a group of ragtag college hockey players found themselves thrown together as a team in what would be considered an impossible task and ultimately this team would go on to win the gold medal over the best that the world had to offer including if not arguably one of the best and most dominant Soviet hockey teams the world has ever seen. Well as with any good sports moment, this moment in time was immortalized into movie form. And yes, being a sport 
sports fan, I have seen that particular movie several times. I own that movie, um, and it is a joy to watch. And one of my favorite moments in that movie occurs when, after yet another painful setback by the U.S. hockey team, another painful loss, uh, the head coach, Herb Brooks, puts the team back on the ice to skate sprints while teaching them that the name on the front of their jersey is more important than the name that is on the back. And so after what seemed like hours of skating with the lights out in the arena with no one left but the team and the coaches, the exhausted team lines up again for yet another sprint. And many of them lying down, exhausted, Coach Brooks calling for the whistle again. In this moment in the movie, this is when a player yells out his name, yells at his hometown, and Coach Herb Brooks asks him, who do you play for? And the player answers, I play for the United States of America. Now, if you've seen this movie, you know the rest of the story. And as many have said, uh, this was a moment in history, a moment in the movie that would ultimately become a, a turning point for that particular team. Now, I share this story not to inflate our own pride as a nation, but I do think that this particular story and this point holds true for us as Christians today. You see, maybe the question that we shouldn't be asking ourselves, which is who do you play for? Maybe a better question would be to ask, who are we? And so as we look at our text today, John is going to remind us of who we are as Christians. And so I hope and pray that as we look at this passage at the end of chapter 2, getting into verse 3, I pray that you would find as a believer this is a passage of encouragement, one that should hopefully instill hope in uncertain times and hopefully answers when it comes to the question of who are we. You see, John is going to remind us of who we are in our text today. He says to us that we are now sons and daughters of God and we now have a future hope that is found in him. And so as Christians, as we continue to remain in Christ, or better yet, as we continue to abide in Christ that John speaks of, as we continue to grow in our faith, John is going to remind us that in each of those moments, we are being molded more and more into the very image of God. So you see, because of our hope that we now have in Christ, we now have a future hope that even John himself, as we will see in his letter, John himself has a hard time even putting into words in our passage today. So as we prepare to walk through our text today, as we'll see John contrast who belongs to God versus who belongs to Satan, my prayer is that this passage would be an encouragement to you as believers as we seek to answer the question today, who are we? So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn with, to, uh, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We will begin reading in verse 28. And once you have found your place in the Word, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. John writing to the local church. He says, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us, is that it did not know him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to, to just be in this place and to worship you. Father, we pray that today you would prepare our hearts and our minds for your truth. We pray that through the study of your word, God, that you and you alone would be glorified in these next few moments. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had already to worship you in song, for the opportunity we've had to worship you through the, the hearing of your word, through praying. And Father, we pray collectively together that as we open your word, God, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts and minds to understand, and through it all, may you be glorified. Lord, help us today to see who we are in you because of you. Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise you for this time. And we ask that you would continue to speak through your word now, for it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, John here, being the loving spiritual father, has now offered words of challenge and words of encouragement to this point in his letter. You see, if you remember when we first started this series, John called the believers to find their full joy in God the Father and the Son. We saw this back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Next, John would call us all to walk in the light of God in chapter 1, verses 5, all the way through chapter 2, verse 2. Next, it would be John who would call the believers to obey the Lord's commands and also to love others back in First John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And then we saw John call all of us again to know our spiritual status and not be seduced by the world back in chapters 2, verses 12 through 17. And then last week as we gathered, we saw that as believers, we are called to be aware of the enemies or to better yet to know our opponents according to chapter 2 verses 18 through 27. So as we get into our text today, John is now going to take the next step in calling all believers to pursue a righteous life and to break the habit of sin and hopefully by God's grace to live in the hope that Christ will one day come again. 
So John, in our passage today, will open with some wonderful blessings promised for those who abide in Jesus Christ, and then he's going to move us to what it is that Jesus has come to do. And so I hope and pray that as we get to that point, we pay careful attention to what it is that John is saying. You see, through John's words, we will begin to answer the following question, who are we? Now we begin in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. John opens by reminding us that we should be confident at his coming. And so he continues with this theme of abiding in Jesus Christ. In fact, John again uses the word abide here in the present imperative. In other words, he's giving a word of command and a call for consistent action. So John here is calling all believers to both remain in union with Christ, but again to remain in communion with Christ, which is not the first time that John has made this point in our letter. In fact, I believe that in speaking of abiding in Christ, I believe that both salvation and sanctification are on John's mind and heart as he seeks to encourage the believers to remain with and remain in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, as we abide in Christ, this abiding or remaining in him should bring about assurance for those who believe in him as Lord, which is found in the confidence that we now have at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, John's point is that one day Christ is coming again. In fact, he says when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. So the question we have to ask ourselves from verse 28 this morning is, when Christ comes again, how will we respond? Will we respond in confidence, knowing that we have been prepared for this moment, knowing that we have been waiting for this moment, or will we respond in shame, knowing that we simply went through the motions without ever truly following Jesus Christ our Lord? When Christ comes, comes again? Will we run to him in confidence or in that moment will we attempt to hide in our own shame? You see, John here is saying to us this morning that it is possible for us to be ashamed when Jesus Christ comes again. Now you may ask, well, how can we even know this to be true? Well, if you go back to Mark chapter 8, verse 38, it's Jesus Christ who says of us, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So again, I ask you this morning, what will our reaction be when we come face to face with Jesus Christ? I think John's question for the believers was this. As a local church, what will be your reaction when Jesus Christ comes for us? Well, I think we can answer that following question in how we respond to Jesus, or better yet, how we respond for Jesus today. 
You see, how we respond to the word of God, how we respond in worship, how we respond in prayer, how we respond in making Jesus Christ known to a world that desperately needs him will reveal our spiritual health. And so in thinking of our own lives individually, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, knowing what our response to Jesus has already been this week, will we then have confidence and run to Christ when he returns. You see, here's the reality for us today. Jesus does not want us hiding from him in shame. Now John moves on from there into verses 29 through 31, and here he teaches us how we can be certain that we are now his. You see, John teaches us in this passage that the fruit of what we are doing will reveal our hearts. Now, this is similar to what James teaches when he says that our works will reveal our faith. Now, again, don't mishear what these men are saying. You see, they are not saying that our works will give us faith, but rather because of our faith, our works will reveal the goodness and the glory of God. So coming back to our text, John teaches that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You see, John here is speaking of regeneration or rebirth, which should ultimately lead to a new behavior for the believers. You see, as children of God, we should grow to look more and more like image bearers of God. In other words, if we could simply put what it is that John is saying, he is saying that our righteous Savior produces righteous saints as they continue to grow in him. Now, John moves from there quickly into chapter three, verse one, and this is where John begins to explain that the source of our joy in being his children is found in our love for God the Father. In fact, he says this when he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, pay attention to the words that John is using here. John is doing his best to attempt to describe the love that God has for his children. He's doing his best to help the local church understand the love that God has shown us all through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. You see, he tells us that this love of God the Father is completely amazing. This love that we have received from God the Father is completely out of this world. And this love that we have now been given by God is a love that can never be taken from us, and it's a love that is meant to be enjoyed forever until we are reunited with him for eternity. You see, because of God's forever love for his people, we can now say of ourselves that we are children of God, and no one can ever take that from us. You see, for as believers, as we read verse 1 together, when we begin to ask the question, who are we? We can answer by saying, I am who I am, not by my own works, not by my own doing, but by the gracious adoption and regeneration that comes from Jesus Christ, my Lord. I am a wretched sinner who was in need of a Savior, and I have been saved by the grace and the goodness of God the Father through Jesus Christ. You see, this thought 
This thought should lead us to joy. Now, I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about satisfaction in who Christ is and what he has done. This thought should lead us to humility, knowing what it is that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. At the same time, it should lead us to security because we now realize as children of God, we are now assured of our faith in Christ Jesus. Now, John then goes on to tell us that the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, these are actually interesting words for John to use, going from what kind of love the Father has given to us to now explaining to us that the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. You see, these, again, are interesting words, but these are words that, as believers, that we should listen to today as we struggle ourselves to even begin to explain our faith to a world that doesn't understand. You see, this world that we live in, it will not know, it does not understand, nor does it appreciate believers and our faith because the world does not know, the world will not understand, nor will it ever appreciate who Jesus Christ is. And so what do we do as a society when we don't understand something? What do we do as a society when we don't know something or something is new and different? We want to pick it apart. We want to tear it apart. We want to destroy it if we can. In fact, this is what would ultimately lead Jesus to say in John 15, verses 18 through 19. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and I would underline this next phrase, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, Jesus tells us, and then John affirms in our passage today, that the world did not understand Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. So don't be surprised when the world doesn't understand us as Christians today. But again, don't allow this moment to cause you grief. Don't allow this lack of understanding to cause you concern because, again, when you go back to John 15, notice what Jesus has said. We have been chosen by Christ. We have much to be thankful for. Coming back to our text in 1 John 3, verse 2. John continues and he teaches us that not only do we have Christ as our source of joy, but we are now being conformed by Jesus Christ. You see, salvation and the good news of the gospel or the good news of Jesus is not just a rescue mission anymore. Rather, it is a complete and total transformation of who we are. So John, in coming back to the text, uses the word beloved, again, to remind us that we are now God's children in the here and the now. But then notice what he also says. He says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So here John reminds the people that yes, today in this moment as believers in Christ, we do have salvation that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. But yes, even in this moment as believers, we are still not a complete 
work because we are still under construction by the will of God for the glory of God. Now, I love what Jonathan Edwards says about this particular point. He says that grace is glory begun and glory is grace completed. You see, there will be a day that is coming where we will live in a state of full, complete, and permanent glorification with Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, we need as believers today to continue to grow in our faith and continue to allow ourselves to be conformed into the very image of Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have to ask ourselves, do we realize that as we grow, do we realize that as we mature in our faith, that we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? And so at this moment, we need to ask ourselves today, what does our growth look like? Are we growing in our faith and understanding of the Lord? Are we growing in our worship? Are we growing in our prayer? Are we growing in our study of the word? And are we growing in our boldness to make him known? Because that's what it means to be like Christ. Now we move from there into chapter 3, verse 3, and here we move from the definition of hope to what should be our response to that hope. You see, if we are now confident in Christ, if we are being conformed to his likeness, then this should now motivate us to purify himself, according to the text, as he is pure. In other words, here is a call to continue to pursue holiness and a call to continue to pursue purity. Now, John, when talking about purity, he's not talking about an individual aspect of our life. Rather, he is referencing our total life. You see, John here is calling us to continue to be heavenly minded so that we are fit for earthly good, seeing that Jesus Christ will continue to set us apart and sanctify us for his good work. Now, this is similar to what Paul says in his own words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so again, we have to ask ourselves as believers, do we see the hope that John is talking about here? Do we see the hope that we now have in Christ? And if so, then what is our response to the hope that we now have in Christ? Are we seeking to live lives that are set apart for Jesus Christ that then shows that we are being conformed more to the very image of God? Or are we simply going through the motions, recognizing that the only reason why we're in church today is to check off a box and then move on with life? Now, if you fall into that second category, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 are words that you need to pay careful attention to. You see, John is now going to turn his attention from assuring us and assuring the believers in our faith in Christ to now writing specifically to those who can be best described by many scholars as falsely assured non-Christians. These are those who are going through the motions. They show up every time the church doors are opened. They show up to help out events, but the reality is they're not living by faith. The reality is they're not growing in faith. 
The reality is they don't know Jesus at all. Now, pay attention to John's goal here. John's goal is, again, not to obliterate them. John's goal is not the same here as it was with the false teachers. He's not just simply looking to remove them, hoping that they will be corrected by the grace of God. No, John is calling these falsely assured non-Christians to wake up to their true spiritual status. You see, when you look at verses four through six, John reminds us that the great enemy and the problem with all of humanity is sin. Sin is the greatest problem that we have in our world and only God can solve our problem. And so John starts with the problem and then he provides the solution. He says in verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now let's pay attention to what it is that John is telling us here. You see, John is teaching us that sin is direct rebellion against God. Sin is a defiant disregard and rejection to the rule of God and the very reign of God. You see, when we sin, we are saying, God, I hate your law. So when sin becomes a habitual rule in our life, it is safe to say that we are now an outlaw against God. John will continue, and this is why we have verse 5. He says, and you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. You see, John tells us that God knew that we needed a rescuer. Apart from God, we would never be able to save ourselves from sin. Apart from God, we would never remove ourselves or rid ourselves of sin. God knew that we needed a sinless one to come into our world in order to deal with our sins. And this leads John right into verse 6 where he says, And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. You see, John has now told us that we could not rescue ourselves from sin. Rather, it was God who sent his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who would deliver us from our sin. And then he teaches us that because we are now in Christ, we will not continue in sin. Now, some people have taken a look at verse 6 and verse 9, and they think that it now affirms that we are called to live a life of sinless perfection. And if you do not live a life of sinless perfection then you do not know Christ. Well, there's a problem with that teaching. You see, that particular teaching contradicts what it is that John is teaching us today. You see, when we look at verse 6, John teaches that because of the new birth, because of this regeneration that has happened in our lives, we now have a new nature. And since Jesus Christ has taken away our sins, we now have Christian freedom. Therefore, what John is teaching us is that sin no longer dominates our lives like it did before Jesus Christ. You see, the reality is even as believers, we may fall into sin. But as believers, we will not allow sin to become our habit. As believers, we no longer delight in sin. 
You see, John here is teaching that since we are now in union with Christ, since we are now in communion with Christ, sin no longer rules over us, for it is Christ who now rules. And so I want to ask the question this morning, do we live in the newfound freedom that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord? Or do we continue to live in a state of constant fear, hoping that maybe we ourselves can work out our own faith? Do we live in the freedom that we now have under the the reign and supremacy of Christ or does sin still dominate and rule our lives? John continues from there in the verses seven and eight and he turns his attention to the devil who is our external foe as he tempts us to sin. John warns us here first by saying, let no one deceive you. Again, here is a command to be watchful against deception. You see, as believers in Christ, we now need to be careful to be sure that what we believe about our Savior is correct according to the very word of God. Because you see, if we believe wrongly, then we very well may find ourselves living in a lifestyle of sin. John goes on to say that whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, being Christ, is righteous. You see, John gives us the the way that we can now defeat deception. If we want to defeat deception in our own lives, then we need to live an upright life in accordance to the word of God that then reveals a visible and tangible faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now again, don't mishear John's point. Doing what is right doesn't make us righteous alone. Rather, we are made righteous by Jesus Christ and doing what is right according to the word then becomes proof of the righteousness that we now have because Jesus Christ is Lord. We then get to verse 8. And here we have one of the clearest statements in the word of God telling us why Jesus Christ came. And again, if you're one of those people who underline in your Bible or circle in your Bible, or maybe you highlight passages, I want to encourage you to underline, circle, highlight, whatever you need to do with uh, chapter 3, verse 8 here, because it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yes. You see, after telling us that those who continue in sin are of the devil, and then telling us that it is the devil who has been sinning since the beginning, John now tells us that Jesus has come to take the enemy down in a complete and total victory. This is a leave no doubt kind of moment. Jesus has come to eradicate sin. Jesus has come looking for the devil, looking for his minions in order to completely destroy them. And he will find them and he will win. You see, I love what John Piper says about this moment, particularly in speaking of Christmas. You see, oftentimes we think of Christmas as a lighter moment, a moment of gifts and a moment of presents. But in one of his own presentations, John Piper, in in speaking about Christmas, actually wrote about it in one of his books. He said this, Christmas is because God aims to destroy something. 
You see, Christmas is God's infiltration of rebel planet Earth on a search and destroy mission. You see, Jesus came to search and destroy the works of Satan. So as we read this passage, we can now see that sin's penalty has now been nullified by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sin's power has now been neutralized by the coming of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And now today as believers, we hold out hope because sin's presence will soon pass away with the return of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Sin will be defeated for good. John moves from there in our text. We get to verses 9 and 10, and John now comes back again to what can best be described as the doctrine of regeneration as a distinguishing mark of a Christian. He speaks of it by first saying that God's seed abides in him. Now, John, in speaking of this moment, is speaking of our new nature that is now in us because of Jesus Christ. You see, by the work of Christ, according to the gospel, the Holy Spirit now gives us a new nature uh, to everyone who repents of sin and trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. You see, John then goes on to give us words of hope and words of comfort when he says he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, this is not a call to perfect living. Rather, it is a reminder that we may stumble. It's a reminder that we as believers, we may fall, but sin cannot and sin will not win at the end of days. You see, it is the Lord who is with us, and when we fall, it is the Lord who then picks us back up. You see, as believers today, This this text, these words should give us hope as we realize that because of Jesus Christ, because of his atoning work, we are free from being enslaved to Satan. We are now free from being enslaved to our sin. And so then John comes to verse 10 where we see a summary of everything that John has written going all the way back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. John gives us a simple litmus test, if you will. Two very simple questions for us to ask ourselves as believers. Question number one is, do we do what is right according to the word of God? Question number two being, do we love God? others. Now, when we look at our passage, we see that John actually asked these questions in negative terms, but it is meant to be a word of affirmation to do what is right according to God and his word. In other words, John is saying in this passage that we are to show ourselves to be true children of God. As believers in Christ, we are to practice these two virtues and therefore ask ourselves daily these two questions. You see, John here is teaching us that those who hate sin, those who are now free from the devil, those who are now born of God, they will do what is right according to the word and they will love others. You see, as Christians, if we watch what the Savior has done, to use the words of John as Beloved children, 
as little children, we will want to hopefully follow him and follow the example he has set before us. So as believers today, in looking at verse 10, we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing when it comes to doing what is right according to the word of God? How are we doing when it comes to loving others? You see, this is why from uh, the beginning, going back three years ago, this has been our vision as a church. We have said that here at Southside, we are going to be together as one, teaching the word faithfully, meaning doing what is right according to the word of God, and loving others boldly. Why? Because that is the call of the believer today. You see, John had a lot to say in our text to affirm us in our walk, but then to also keep us on guard from deception. You see, Jesus Christ has come. John wanted us to know that. It was Jesus who has rescued us from the sin that would have led to our death. But we now know that Jesus didn't just come to rescue us. He came to remake us, to conform us to his image. But not only to do that, but he came to defeat Satan. He came to defeat sin itself. So now as his image bearers, We are the ones who are now called to continue to grow in our faith. We are the ones who are now called to continue to love those around us. And so John reminds us of these words, but then he tells us that we can now have assurance and hope because of who we are in Christ and because of the promise that is to come. You see, here's our reality today. And I think John understood it for the local church. We are going to continue to struggle. I don't know what your week holds for you. You don't know what your week holds for you. I don't even know what this week holds for me. I know I have hopes of what I'd like to see happen this week, but they're just that, they're hopes. This may be a hard week for you. You may already be in the midst of a hard week. And I'm here to tell you, it's going to get harder. Nothing about coming to faith in Christ was ever meant for us to hear, now that you're a believer, life is going to be easy. That's just not the reality. We live in a fallen world. It's going to be hard. And in the midst of the hard, chances are, it's probably going to get harder. And so it's in those days where even as believers in Christ, and I think we can all attest to this, as believers in Christ, we're going to struggle. We're going to find ourselves falling short of the glory of God. We may even find ourselves in the midst of sin, which then leads to confusion, which then leads to doubt, which then leads to questioning. And we begin to ask the question, who are we? You may even find yourselves in the middle of the night while it's completely quiet in your home, your children are asleep, your spouse is asleep, and you're desperate on your couch or on your floor looking to heaven going, Christ, Jesus, who am I in you? Well, if that's where you are, or if that's where you're about to be, when the questions of doubt come, I would encourage you to go back and reread this passage. Listen to John's answer again. 
Who are we? We belong to Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We have been redeemed by Christ. We have been chosen by Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Our debt has been paid. Our assurance is now found in him. He is the hope that is today and the hope of what is to come. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He was there in the beginning. He is with us now and he will be with us in the end. We were enemies of God. We are now adopted into the family of God. And one day we will be reunited with him because today we can say that we are all sons and daughters of the most high king. That is who we are. Let's pray together.